0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders, with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. We are on our third episode of the day we batch these, so let's roll right into it. Who we got today, Colin? Got Wes Hamer, co founder of Task. Wes, what's going on, my man? How
1: yeah. you doing? What's up, guys? Glad to be here. Is the rumor nice
0: true? Is the rumor that you go by MC Hamer? True.
1: By some people, yes. <laughs> Others, no. Halfway true.
2: <laughs> that's the new nickname. I need you to change your name on Twitter. <laughs> reflect that. That's fair.
0: That's fair. So, so. we've we've known you guys for you and and your partner Kenny for quite some time. Honestly, I don't remember exactly how we met. Yeah. Which is usually the story with just about everybody. But I know it's been at least a year, year and a half, maybe. I don't know. Been yeah, yeah, six months. Six yeah, months I, was or so. say yeah. I have no concept of time. Yet.
2: So <laughs> Just like, man, we've known you forever. Like, two years? <laughs> like, like, maybe eight months.
1: <laughs> yes. About six months, we came down here, right? Yeah. And introduced ourselves super early, right? We we're just starting out, you know, asking you guys for feedback on our application. Yeah. yeah, yeah. First version, MVP, really basic. And
2: started the conversation then. Yeah, it was here in the studio, remember? Yeah, absolutely. Running through it. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about TASC, you know, just high level. What yeah. do you guys do? What is Task? Yeah,
1: so Task is a operational platform specific to production operations in oil and gas. What we do is we combine machine learning. So we plug into current existing SCADA infrastructure, take that high frequency information. Now, high frequency information could be anything from five minute polls to 15 minute polls roundabout, take that information into our system. We flag any anomalous or abnormal well behavior to the end user. So that's usually through to the field technician or to the engineer, to the optimizer. They classify what that failure is or what that deferment is due to, what the root cause is and what the failure type is. The second piece of task is taking that information and automating assignment to all production operations. So whether you're an engineer, whether you're a field technician, whether you're an optimizer, whether you're a field foreman, aggregating that information up, contextualizing it to the end user. And then the third piece of the platform is a no code section of the platform where you can create your own rules of workflow and own procedures to take those failure types and those failure predictions and assign actions to those so that's what we're operating we're we're really you know trying to be holistic to production optimization i think with production optimization where it's fallen flat previous is it's a segment right it's specific to gas lift It's specific to rod pumps whatever the case is or assignment or workflow. We're trying to connect all of that where it hasn't been connected because the main problem I see in production operations is everything is so segmented and so siloed, but we're really trying to break apart that to optimize organizational efficiencies for the most part.
0: And and there's there's nothing novel necessarily about tracking downtime right everybody does that and but where you guys really differ and I, I kind of shared y'all's last update I was yeah. super super happy with what you guys have done and yeah. I, I made a comment on that post that it blows my mind that nobody is focused on the how do you take action on that mm-hmm. right and then how do you actually optimize the assets and so yeah. it's that task management hints the name task, right? Right. Um, With a Q. But there that there makes sense to me now. <laughs> 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 Boom. <laughs> there's just a million things. Once you really break it down and you understand production operations, there's a million things that have to happen on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. And then you throw in, you know, these failures and, and various reasons that you have downtime on top of mm-hmm. it. And it makes that list so much harder. Yeah, And then on top of that, you usually have to do that in a certain order. Right. Mm-hmm. And all my experience of working with with ENPs, with hundreds of different ENPs, I've never once seen anybody ever address that issue or even bring it up in conversation. Yeah. It's just, oh, we just do our jobs, right? We know yeah. we know we need to do it, we need to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you treat it like almost like how the development world treats task, if mm-hmm. you understand why things are happening, but also being able to track out how much time did it take to remedy. Yeah. The issue, then you can also kind of track back, okay, what does it cost you for that time as y- well?
1: Yeah, I think there's this this idea of work done and work assumed in every organization, right? Um, and so, like you said, most organizations track downtime to a degree. Usually that's very labor intensive, right? You have a plethora of engineers, foremen, field techs kind of reporting and scrambling on a daily basis, try to figure out like what the hell happened today. Production dipped 10% and everybody's firefighting for the most part, right? We're trying to automate that process. We're trying to simplify operations where it's not chaotic, where you don't spend five hours out of your day across 20 different people to try to understand what's going on with production. So I say that's one aspect of utilizing the machine learning, the classification we're doing for these failure signatures, for this deferment, for this downtime on a daily basis. The second aspect is exactly what you you said, right? Just tracking what the hell are people doing on a daily basis, simplifying that process and if you have a way to automate assignment across a variety of roles then you understand how much time you're designated to each one of these jobs and what the success of the job is and you know how that relates to the assignment and the action i always say you know we talked to a lot of predictive analytic companies that you know didn't have so much oil and gas experience previously and the the pitch was always hey i'd love to predict these failures for you right we have this great predictive model and i said you know that's awesome you know what do we do when we have a prediction? And there's just no answer, right? And so I think what we're trying to do is there is value in predicting failures, right? But you have to tie it to action and to assignment and to the whole organization. And that has to be connected for you to be effective or else your prediction of failure you know, is has no ROI.
0: Absolutely. And I think that the last piece is also being retrospective in everything that you do. If you make predictions, you should go back and check and see whether your predictions were accurate or not. And Absolutely. then if they were or weren't, why or why, were, why weren't they? Mm-hmm. And I think so many people miss that. In, in my experience of working with engineers, and, and given – you worked at BP, right? Yeah, That's okay. Correct. So I, I don't have much exposure to BP or some of the bigger companies. I mostly worked with mid-sized independent producers. But most of the time when there was a failure, a lot of the times when I saw them, they were never asking the question, why did the failures happen mm-hmm. in the first place? Yep. It was just, I was a hole in tubing, hole in casing, get a crew out there, fix it done like this mm-hmm. is just the nature of the business we'll just accept it right? yeah.
1: yeah yeah yeah. it's interesting I think that there's even in in that workflow right there's a lot of inefficiencies of getting clarity to each one of these issues right what's the leading indicators what are we going to do about it the problem in operations is that it happens every day right so all of that detail goes away because you're fighting the next issues the next day and the next issues the next day and trying to figure out you know who did what to this well did it work did it not work what's actually going on and so even providing transparency on that especially you know going into the, what an engineer does right an engineer is trying to diagnose these issues or these these one-off instances that maybe don't happen all that that commonly these complex failures but to do that effectively and to do that at scale with an engineer that's looking at a thousand wells 400 wells 500 wells whatever the case might be you know you can't do that at scale and so yeah you have to have a more intelligent way that you're operating, especially at oil and gas prices right now, right? It's just inevitable. Your, your g and costs are re- reducing, and most companies are taking that and reducing overhead, right? But they don't have a plan of what they're going to do with that reduced overhead.
2: Well, that's exactly the problem. It's not just a result of low commodity prices, but it's the entire capital structure of oil and gas as a whole. Like, think about it. You go pick up more and more assets, what comes along with it? More engineers, more geologists, mm-hmm. more landmen, etc., etc. Et like you, There's no efficient way to scale up the human component of operating the assets, right? And I think that's going to be a big theme of oil and gas companies as they continue to cut CapEx and really try to just kind of hunker down. It's how can we make our people more efficient mm-hmm. and actually have a scalable model to bring on more assets without having to bring on an entire team because if you bring on an entire team, well, guess what? You're just adding on to the problem of the capital structure and you've got this good asset, but it's never going to be profitable because you're having to pay so many people and your g is just too high. So yeah. I think that's going to be a pretty common theme over the next few years. I,
0: I absolutely agree. I think that, and that was one of the biggest missions with WellHub was to it was to optimize the people as much as you've optimized any of your assets or the rest of the business. Mm-hmm. And all my time ever working with the I never once saw anybody ever using project management software, which, yeah. which is weird because you go in the tech world <laughs> and everything is built around your project management software, whether mm-hmm. that's Jira or whether it's a Asana or Trello, even a basic thing like Trello. Yeah. You're, there's so many moving parts and there's so many things that can fall between the cracks. And so everything is documented. Everything is allocated how much resources are going to it. It's prioritized and it's put into a certain timeline, right? And
1: operations it's, is not really like it that at all. Never, <laughs> Yeah, no,
0: it's just the, it's the wild, wild west. It's yeah, just, yeah, absolutely. we get to it when we get to it. We'll do what we do. Yep. And, and, and oil and gas, I think, is traditionally seen that as like, it seems like anytime there's any kind of structure or processes put in place, the first thing that you hear is, oh, well, this is making my life miserable and you're micromanaging me and stuff. And that's not the point. The point is to be more efficient.
1: Yeah. I think in one thing about one thing you said earlier, you're talking about, I think when you combine machine learning with workflow management, right? Task management, what are people doing in operations in an industry where, you know, it's relatively new, right? Everybody's talking about, you know, their AI and everything else. For the most part, the the problem is implementing the technology right to the field technician when you're making a prediction well what the hell is behind the prediction right How, how accurate is the prediction are you contextualizing that information to the end user If you don't have that, then you have a lack of trust in the system. And the lack of trust is, you know, the system's going to fall apart because people aren't going to be using the system because people don't have confidence in it. So that's a problem that we're trying to tackle as well, is how can we be very transparent in what are our back end? We're not trying to be a black box where I think the first wave of uh, quote unquote AI and machine learning and oil and gas is somewhat that. You don't really understand it, Right. And you have to if it's going to be successful across the organization. And so that's one thing that we're very focused on right now is, you know, providing that transparency to the end user where they can trust the system, engage, you know, feedback because I think that's where you have these breakthroughs and efficiency across the organization.
2: Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, especially when you talk about the black box issue and transparency. Yeah, one of my buddies the other day was telling me he was looking at investing in this machine learning company outside of oil and gas. And he's a software guy himself. So said at least, he's not stupid. <laughs> and anyways, he's looking at investing a substantial amount of money. And he ends up finding that their machine learning was actually just a uh, table full of guys sitting there doing everything manually. And nice. it's like, Solid. yeah, yeah. So like you open up the black box and it's just like two little guys <laughs> and then, <you> know, like, <laughs> typing away, doing all the work themselves. A prediction. So, yeah. <laughs> We've got this human learning model. Yeah. We're trying to reach money <laughs> for <24. laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, just having trust in in the process and the methodology is really important. But let's kind of rewind it back a little bit. We kind of got in the weeds there. And let's talk about you personally, Yeah, your background. You know, I think that we'd mentioned that you were an engineer at BP. So let's... Back before that, you know, where'd you go to school? What happened after school? What led up to this point? Yeah, great question.
1: So I graduated from University of Tulsa, mechanical engineer. My thought around mechanical engineer was, you know, don't get pigeonholed in production. Yeah. <laughs> and don't have that greater context. I always was really liked inventing products, right? And so for my senior project, I, I was trying to do this uh, shoe cleaner Box, you know, didn't make much sense at the time. Right. But but that's kind of what I was geared towards. Right. I very much liked new product and and something that you can like put your hands on and, and invent, quote unquote. I did that and then graduated in the end of 2008 where jobs were just, you know, all over the place. Not the case. I only had two offers for full-time employment after I came out of college. Those two opportunities were two internships that I did, did well with those internships, and so got a, got a call for those two guys. That company was NOV, so I worked for NOV for three years out of college doing drilling tool design. So I did downhole drilling, drilling tool design, some bit design at a very surface level. I was the site? Like, Mud motors? You know, yeah, motors, agitators, Breno V. So, cool. so mainly mainly motors for the most part. Left to go to Sandridge. So worked at Sandridge, independent oil and gas company in Oklahoma City. I yep. was there for about two and a half years. Doing production, and then really getting to the production optimization world. You know, how do you address these failures at scale? What, what, you know, how how can you have more of an effect on production? What does that look like? How do systems incorporate into production? This was 2000 into 2014. I left Sandridge and then took a year off. So. Me and my wife traveled for a year. So we took our savings for, you know, the first five years out of coming out of college and spent, really saved about $80,000, traveled for about $50,000 for for a
2: year. That's awesome. You just guys just go across the world different yeah, places. Yeah,
1: yeah. So we, I mean, you know, my my wife's dad had, had cancer. My wife's, or my wife's uncle died of brain cancer. And so, you know, you start thinking about life. In general like what do you you want out of life like what do you want to do right yeah I think we all take health for granted and we're all very healthy right until you're not and then you have this oh shit moment where you're like well I, I very much regret I wish I would have done XYZ and so, you know, I very much live my life by not trying to regret things in the future. Right. And so took a year off, traveled. It was great. Uh, great perspective. Went to Rio for a bit, Europe for a bit, Africa for about three months, China for about a month or so. That perspective of just people and their experiences and everything else is really, you know, you learn a lot about yourself, right?
2: Yeah. There's a, you ever read the book, Shoe Dog? No. A great fucking book. Anyone listening, if you haven't read that book the audio book i highly recommend it but it's about uh phil knight the founder of nike and he talks about doing that
0: what was he you read that book right Oh, we, yeah, we listened to an book together because we were going up to Walmart. <laughs> Doesn't sound gay. Yeah. Yeah. We listened,
2: we listened to that book together,
0: dog. You don't remember that? <laughs> it was on a drive. drive. It was right. on a very manly drive to do workovers on our wells. So we were doing manly shit. Okay. And we threw footballs and we drank beers the whole nice. time. So. so, like,
2: yep. But no, in his early, I think his early 20s or late teens, um, he took a trip around the world just nice. to get, you know, kind of that life perspective yeah. of, you know, Not everything's inside this little box. There's a lot happening out there. And he said it was one of the most transformative things that he did. So actually, it's kind of like what led him to creating Nike, you know, being over in Japan and seeing everything that was going on over there. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's very cool. Yeah. So, yes. So so did that. What was the best place you went to? Best place.
1: The most common question. So I phrase it in best experiences. I think, you know, the best place you can be in a country and it can be shitty weather or, yeah. you know, people can just be shitty, whatever the case is, right? But the country could be amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, we had two amazing experiences out of out of many, but we biked across Spain. So me and my wife did that for about two and a half weeks on the Camino de Santiago. And then we spent uh, a month and a half in Uganda, learning from an organization that does sustainability in the terms of animal loans to families. And so they'll impregnate a cow, the cow will give birth, they'll sell the milk to the school, and... And they'll be very conscious, right? Very effective about how they're giving out these microloans. So that was very cool. When you go to a village in, in the middle of Africa where, you know, nobody's seen a white person before. It's very humbling. You know, you you learn a lot. <laughs> Your life puts in uh, perspective very quickly. Mm-hmm. But that was just a, a very humbling experience that I still remember and still, still live by. To That's this awesome. Day. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah.
0: That's awesome, man. So we did
1: that, you know, traveling at the other side is not all champagne on rooftop decks, that's for sure. When you have diarrhea for 12 (laughs) hours and have an overnight bus and the bathroom's out, you know, that's not a pretty story. So (laughs) that's the reality, though, right? As you guys know, starting a company is not all sexy, right? There's a lot of trials and tribulations and, and ups and downs. So anyways, came back in two thousand fifteen, in the middle of two thousand fifteen. Manager that I used to work for at BP, Mr. Brian Pugh, was going over to at sorry, at Sandridge, was going over to BP and talked to him and offered me a role at BP. So very fortunate to to hit that timing pretty spot on. Wasn't planning on that at all. Actually wasn't planning on going back to oil and gas industry.
2: And really? then yeah. And then took Why? that How come? Why did you not plan on going back?
1: It's a good question you know i think falling back on what i was more in tune with was creating more right Mm -hmm. i think in operations you just get in such as firefighting operating operating mode it's like you're walking around with your head cut off all the time trying to find out what's wrong and all these things that's the main reason i really wanted to go try something right try to start my own company and when i came back that was the initial thought after traveling like you know find out what you really want to do and then go pursue that Mm -hmm. and that's what i tried to do coming back the ideas were just kind of all over the place it wasn't You know, there wasn't a problem that I was addressing, right? But I was trying to go through that process.
0: So what what were you planning on doing if you were going to come by to Wellington? What was
1: I planning on doing? I had a few ideas. Make the um, shoebox cleaner. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Take a commercial.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that wouldn't have worked. That wouldn't have been a good one. One idea I had was just getting better at the brokerage part of selling a house, right? I mean, there's 6% or 3%, and that can all be automated, right? There's a lot of companies doing that now, but at the time what five years ago or so thinking about that and, and getting an MVP set up there but you know I wasn't that into it I didn't want to pursue it I was still toying around with different ideas at the time
0: yeah Yeah. so we've been in the we, the reason I ask is because we've been in that before at least I know I've been in that before yeah especially when I got burned after my first startup in oil and gas I was like you know, fuck this. Let's get into something else. Let's like... <laughs> then I, but then I, like, I was like, I don't really know what else I'm going to do. And yeah. All my contacts were here. And I was also in love with the industry, but I was just burned at the second. So... Yeah, absolutely. It happens. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I worked for BP for three and a half years and then recently started Task nine months ago. So we're excited to land our first contracts here recently. And, you know, we've been on this journey, me and my co-founder Kenny, and excited for what Task is doing. Hold on, man. You can't just like...
2: I feel like you just skipped a whole lot of shit right there. Like you can't just go like, oh yeah, I'm at BP, and then yeah, start a task, and then got a contract. And I'm like, okay, Let's wind it back a little bit. Just blaze through it. So, first all off, right, so let's that's, that's enter the podcast. All right, guys. No, so yeah, yeah. So all right, you're at BP. Okay, you're seeing. I'm assuming that you're seeing all these inefficiencies in operations. Yeah. While you're at BP, sure. Right. So I'm sure this gave you the inspiration for task? Am I putting words in your mouth or is that what happened?
1: Yeah, I'll talk a little to that. Thank you for framing that question taking a (laughs) pause and a rewind. Yeah, so BP was an interesting time, right? You know, they were interested in making their onshore assets more efficient. You know, they were more operated like offshore assets in the past and they're trying to get more nimble approach to how do we operate at, you know, these wells efficiently. So, There's a lot of room for autonomy and innovation during those, you know, three years ago. And that was a great time, right? Because we were trying a lot of different things out. We were implementing a lot of different technology. We were moving rather quickly, right? And so that was a lot of learning at the same time, a lot of trial and error. And so it was a a good time to be in operations because you really saw what worked, what didn't work, and what can be improved. I think from our time there, yeah, there's a lot of things that we realized, you know, part of it was how you're structuring your data, how you're collecting your data, right? I think for the most part, the digital transformation in, in most oil and gas companies are heavily touted but you know not too much
2: realized i hate that term digital like anytime i hear digital it, transformation the, the I, just, worst term. I, I know it's, like,
1: oh, it's okay. like it's like it's like such a bullshit term
2: digital transformation equals
0: not shit's happening yes, for sure <laughs> absolutely That's, it's a spongebob meme it's like all right i'm gonna head out yeah <laughs>
2: right, i'm gonna head out <laughs> <laughs> nothing really happening here yeah, yeah. yeah. like i'm kind of it kind of seems that we've got over that digital transformation verbiage over the last, I don't know, eight or 10 months. I haven't heard it too much, but anytime I hear that just stuck on it for 20 years. Yeah.
1: (laughs) People still talking about how to do it, right? Do do the digital transformation piece of it. (laughs) So yeah, going back to it a little bit, you know, that's what we, we started to learn is these key pieces of, you know, where technology is falling in operations right now, how, how it's, you know, it's helpful because you're learning more about technology and how to apply it to the problem set. But, you know, we learned a lot about, you know, these black box solutions, right? That are machine learning AI that completely sit outside of your operations. How do you engage with it? How does the operator benefit from it? You know, usually what's dabbed is going back to digital transformation is, a top-down initiative to do X, right? But then you talk to the field and they're like, that's just not working at all. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's a complete misalignment, right? And I think that's where a lot of companies are at right now is in that space of of bragging about some initiative that's going on. But, you know, and saying that it, it yields... 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever percent efficiency. And then you talk to the guys in the field or the optimizers or, the, or some of the engineers and they're like, absolutely not happening. So part of it was seeing technology being not being transparent from a machine learning standpoint. Part of it was seeing how digital transformation, right? these forms in oil and gas just really fall short of potential because you're collecting all this information, but you're not using any of it, right? It is a reactive process and it, it can't be used proactively for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then seeing where internal development goes, right? I think for a lot of companies right now, there's huge push to develop internally, create their own internal system that manage some of this. And I think from my standpoint, from across multiple companies you see almost this reversion back to this is way too much to manage we're not product designers <laughs> this is not our skill set we don't have time in the white space to think about these problems for months on months on end or, or a week at a time just for the intent of the users who are the users what is their intent what are we actually trying to achieve so Anyways, all those things kind of combining into, you know, how can we create a better product, a modern product for operations where we see this big gap in, in the market right now? There's not a lot of companies holistically trying to do this. And then, you know, that was a lot of the the ideation for task.
2: Awesome. And, you know, just give a, a shout out to the others on the team. Yeah. You've got other co-founders, right?
1: Yeah, I've got another co-founder, Mr. Kenny Nguyen. Kenny, what's up? Yeah, Kenny, Kenny, <laughs> a huge hustler.
2: You know, and Kenny was at BP as well,
1: right? Yeah, Kenny was at BP. He worked at Shell previous to BP, so did that for about three years and then was at BP, he worked on the same team.
2: Kenny's an engineer by trade as yeah, well, Yeah,
1: right? he's, a, he's a, actually a mechanical engineer as well and got more into you know data science, algorithms, code, Python, everything of the above. In probably the last year and a half at a sent at B P and then really, you know, it's taken the really executed it on that for the past nine months here at Task.
2: Very cool. Yeah. So you guys, you team up, you have this idea. Now how do you go and execute it? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but bootstrapped. Yeah. You know, didn't take any outside capital. So you gotta develop this technology, you have this idea, you have this theory, but now you gotta execute it. So what was the first step in getting the ball rolling?
1: Man, I love this question. I could talk hours on this. Well, um, we got like 15 20 minutes. So.
2: <laughs> so keep it at two minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that is the startup challenge, right? What do you develop as your MVP? How, you know, how can you be so capital efficient with the money that, you know, we're, we're literally taking out of our savings account to develop this MVP of, you know, task. I think, one thing that, you know, we had to talk to a lot of clients, right? Our experience at you know, shell, sandwich, BP is not every operation by mm. any means, you know, and you you guys have seen this, right? And so we had to approach the market and we had to get feedback. And so we we got an initial MVP stood up rather quickly that was pretty pretty wireframed, right? Engaging a lot of clients, gauged around, you know, I'd say 30, 32 clients. Who, about uh, a, who built months. the
2: initial MVP did Kenny? Was he able to code it up?
1: Yeah. So Kenny built initial MVP and then we had a front end developer so kenny was doing all back-end work and then initial developer was doing all for the most part front-end and Kenny, kenny managing the project cool yeah so we got that stood up relatively quickly i'd say two months into us starting out so spending a lot of time just trying to understand you know what what does this look like what's the intent we actually brought on a contracted out ui ux to do that it was very not not a skill set that me or kenny you, you know have <laughs> and so we definitely needed that creative mindset in here to really think about design in a different way in a simplified way than yeah. we traditionally thought about the problem i think when you ask engineers to design something it's like yeah just throw another button and another <laughs> click and another piece of information here and this information overload so she really helped us out there but yeah, we had this initial MVP set up two months into it and then started engaging about you know 32 clients on you know what you liked, what you didn't like, really took that feedback during that time period, got a few trials talked about, and then started really, you know, three months after that, <coughs> and then released our second product here a month ago. Cool.
2: Yeah. So when you guys hired that contractor to take care of the UI and UX, What was that process like? Was that someone local there in Denver? Um, Yeah, it was through a mutual friend and we started just, you know, she had a desire
1: to do more design work. She was she's a journalism major and doing some design work for a magazine, but really wanted to do, you know, user base application for industry, really. It was actually very fitting at the time. She wanted to get more into the work and the space that we were at. So met a few times. She did a few mock-ups for us and really kind of really questioning our thought process, which I think another perspective on what you're doing coming from somebody completely outside of oil and gas really helps. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing some contract hours and then made her an offer full-time June this year.
2: Oh, awesome. She's working for you full-time? She's full-time. Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. It's a big step. Yeah, for, That's for sure. sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Especially, you know, when you're when you're bootstrapped right yes. I mean, yeah, So um, People don't understand how fucking hard it is to grow a company bootstrapped. I mean, yeah. You know, we're we were laughing about this talking you know before we we're recording and it's just like, you know, you pay out of your pocket, you pay out of your pocket, you pay out of your pocket, and then you look and the year later you're like, Holy shit, how much money have I put into <laughs> yeah. this? Like Absolutely. You no, know, it, it doesn't seem like a lot in in The time that it's happening, but all the time... I mean,
1: a lot of people are insulated to that problem, right? Working at a, a EMP, <laughs> spending, you know, yeah, I think this could be a tubing leak or, or maybe it's this. I'm not sure, but let's get a work over on it. It's let's get a rig there, yeah. yeah. let's spend 50,000, 100,000. Well, it didn't work out, you know, that's all right. Yeah. You cannot make those decisions starting a company out of your own pocket. Like, yeah. you know, you you will be bankrupt in, very quickly. Yeah. And so I think that there's something that we're really proud about, right, is we, we've put our own capital into the company. We haven't had to take investors money. We, we know the problem that we're trying to solve. I think that is also a differentiator where you've seen the pain points here from multiple different roles, right? From ops management to innovation to engineering team lead. You, you know, you see these, these pain points and you're designing a product around those pain points. And so, you know, we're really proud of that. And to, to, you know, catapult off of that and to create a product that looks, functions, we feel like really fits a need, we're excited about for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, you mentioned that you just got this contract. Congratulations! Yeah, thank by the you, way. thank you, man. Fucking, appreciate that.
1: It's exciting. I, I um, very
2: much appreciate it. Know that feeling. I don't know if there's you know better feeling. It makes it feel yeah makes it feel real, right? Like sure. hey, so this, so, this so, isn't.
0: <laughs> there's is a special feeling about the first one. <laughs> Yeah, right, and especially when it you've been is. at it. And it's even more sweeter when it's your own money that you've been dumping yeah. into it and you're just like, "Oh, <laughs> we actually have something here." Yeah. But yeah, yeah. but you're still you're still broke because now that money <laughs> yeah. goes yeah. into
2: scaling yeah. and growing. So, yeah, you're still you still don't have any money coming back to you. Yeah, account, we're, we're still
1: not getting paid. That's <laughs> for that's for sure not happening right now. Yeah, not what, that we were before at all either. So, yeah, you know,
2: that, that's something I don't think people realize, you know. There's a big debate going on on Twitter right now and startup land. Someone had made a you, you might have seen this on twitter but someone made an anti-vc uh, yeah. post just talking about venture capital zombie capital you know they just suck the life out of you yada 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 and it just kind of kicked it's a, the the
0: post we work apocalyptic maybe
2: but it, it kicked yeah. off this big debate against bootstrap versus funded mm-hmm. versus vc backed.
0: and there's pros i mean
2: one you can't say you it's, can't you can't blanket big. it across. Yeah, like, it's, it's too It depends big. on the fucking business. It yeah. depends on the, on the, the,
0: the people. Some, depends on the investors. It depends on there's so many
2: variables that go yeah. into it, right? If you are gonna do something bootstrapped, I don't think people understand that, yeah, okay, you land a big contract, but then that contract gets all that revenue goes back into the business into scaling. Absolutely. It's a long time. It, it, it's a long time until you get to
0: take a paycheck out. And here's yeah, the, here's and the double edged sword with closing a contract is that you now have to deliver on something, right? Mm-hmm. And as a small startup, you not only have to implement it, you have to support it technically and with the users that you're interfacing with. Yeah. And if it's a company that's a midsize E and and above, you know that could be. Hundreds of users that you now have to interface with directly, your small team does, if not thousands, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. So I think back to the early GDS days, and I'm sitting here taking calls from pumpers and from accountants and from engineers, from hundreds of people all by myself for years. <laughs> yeah, you have to, right? And from, from yeah, and then that, that goes all day along with other business that you're yeah. already doing and it's like until like 11 o'clock at night, it's like four o'clock in the morning and nobody thinks about that. So you close a contract, now you have to like reinvest into mm-hmm. beefing up the team and then that's also more of like a liability in the event that, you know, this contract doesn't work out or yeah. there's a lot of things that people don't really understand that come along with, growth.
1: Yeah, totally. I think that there's there's two aspects to, you know, the the bootstrap or the VC route, right? You know, seeing the seen the debates, right? It's different per company, right? There's no right or wrong way to start a company. And I think that's something that I've very much learned throughout this, you know, the past 10 months is you think you have to be this person, right? You have to be, you know, I've got, well, I, I'm a founder, I've, I'm, you know, starting up this company, I have to be this way you know you start realizing that your your strengths are your strengths right and every ceo every founder is is completely different and so that same thought process applies to you know putting money into a company or putting, you know, outside capital into a company. And, you know, the problems are hard either way. There's this not easy when you have money coming in from venture to mm-hmm. start a company. Right. What we the reason why we bootstrapped in the beginning and didn't solely go try to raise money and spend all our time doing that was because exactly that. Right. We didn't have, you know, the, the investors that we talked to at an early stage We're asking for traction and revenue. And because we don't have that track record, you just you have to make it yourself, right? You've got to hustle and do it. And that's what we know, right? Me and and Kenny can very much hustle to do that. And so we found, you know, combining the the first thing I said and, and this, what we really are good at, we can execute on. And with that execution, we can, you know, stand on that going forward. Now, what that looks like over time, if we take money going forward or not, we'll see. But you know i think you have to to navigate through that landscape at an early stage and try to find out like what are you really good at if you're good at talking to investors and you're good at pitching this story and you can get money to accelerate the business great it's not a not a bad business model at all right you're you're very high growth and you've got to deliver on that we very much like you know controlling that destiny and having that full execution on ourselves because the heart you know the the more pain invoked on the founders to do that like it makes or breaks you and so yeah. that that's kind of the it's also really point.
2: cool like if you can bootstrap a company and you start generating revenue yeah. and then when you start having term sheets come in from investors without you even solicit <laughs> soliciting investment like that's one it gets fun because yeah. now you've got options, right? Not at that you point got, yet, that brother, leverage. but but <laughs> <laughs> you guys will be soon. So, yeah, what are you guys? You know, you're uh, how how long are you into this project? Like, we are nine months. Yes, yeah, say nine months. Yeah. So what what's the outlook for you guys moving forward? You just got your your first contract. You're about mm-hmm. to monetize. Now take over the world. What, what's going on next? What's yeah, the next step?
0: really really quickly. Just because, if anybody's listening, you think that like, oh, you've been doing this for nine months. You're still wet behind the ears and stuff. The MVP that you guys walked in with at two months when we first met you was better than ninety five percent of products that I've ever seen in oil and gas. Period. So, yeah, appreciate that. So, yeah. if you did that in two months, I'm I'm curious to see what you guys have done in nine months. So I'm gonna yeah. pre I want to preface that for the audience mm-hmm. and then let you finish the question. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you know, we've got we actually have two two contracts set in place right now. We're focusing on executing those contracts, really going through the implementation phase with each one of those companies. You know, I think right now we're we're at a point where we're We're going to execute on that work and really make sure that we have the value to the customer and then go from there. You know, we could start engaging with a lot more clients, right? And and doing other trials, and that might come Q1, absolutely. But at the same time, we're very focused on making sure that we have a, a, a great value statement, right? to go forward and talk to other operators that is not a bullshit value statement that really makes sense, right? And really solves this pain point and really adds value. And so that's really what we're going to be focused on over the, the next
2: bit while, we'll you know, have other trials coming up for Q1 2020. Awesome, man. Sounds like you guys are going to be busy. So if anyone's listening to the podcast, where can they find you guys?
1: Yes, yeah, so we're on Twitter, Wes underscore Hamer and LinkedIn,
2: Weshamer. On awesome. LinkedIn, yeah. Awesome. Put it in the show notes. You follow follow Wes on Twitter. There you follow go. Me, there you go. And then we get together and uh, <laughs> fucking join our antics <laughs> over on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wes, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, thanks, um, guys. You know, really looking forward to seeing what you guys are doing. I'm excited about it. It's been exciting to see you guys. You know, from pretty much point of inception MVP yeah. to where you're at now. So I'm looking forward
0: to watching you guys grow. Jake, kick it over to you, man. Thanks <laughs> again, Wes. Thanks to you guys for tuning in, whether you're watching on YouTube or whether you're listening on the podcast app. We love you guys. Please leave a rate and review. Forward this to all your friends and your coworkers. Spam their inboxes, and we'll catch you guys in the next episode.